Well, it is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Like uh, Pastor James said, my name is Vince. Uh, last time I saw some of you guys was, I don't know, uh, 10 plus years ago and, and a lot of new faces that I'm just meeting for the first time right now. And, and, and I'm, I'm so encouraged to be here. It's kind of surreal for me to see how the Lord is so profoundly faithful to his people is so good to his people that he's the one that's established his church, that his church is going to stand, that he's going to bring it to completion at, at the day of his coming. And, and that's pretty profound, I think. It's pretty surreal for me to be here, and it's a joy. So this morning, we're going to talk about mission a little bit. I, I, I'm encouraged to know that you guys are talking through three circles and how to have conversations and relationships with people where you share Christ. In the context of, of ordinary life, how do you reflect and share Christ in a meaningful, intentional way? I think this morning is just going to be an encouragement in that way, that we get to see from God's Word, from, from the, the life of Jesus and His words to His disciples, just a few ways that we might grow in missional living. Like, uh, like James said, it's been, I guess, so I graduated uh, from high school tw- t- 2009. And, and I came back here some in college. I went to Virginia Tech for college. Uh, while I was here, I was sitting in one of these rows when an invitation was given and I walked up the aisle and said, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. I was baptized right there, 10 feet away from me. I was discipled here, I was mentored here, I learned about the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus. I fell in love with God's word, I learned the importance of of sharing the life of the family of the church, God's family. And I got a heart for mission. And, And a lot of that was because of my time here, going to other countries, going to Venezuela, going to Peru, going to to Norfolk, but also just living on mission in Richmond, in Powhatan, going on mission together. God gave me heart to see people changed by the gospel. One of the things that the Lord has impressed on me for a long time since I've become a believer is this, that God is not just in the business of, of making bad people good people. He's in the business of taking dead people and making them alive. He's in the business of making what is old new. Indeed, he's going to make all things new. And that's starting here. What's going on in this room right now is actually a foretaste of heaven where people have been made new through the good news of Jesus and are being made new. And one day, we will fully be new. And so why are we planting a church in Blacksburg? We're planting a church in Blacksburg primarily because God has called us to. He said, go plant a church in Blacksburg. He said that to our hearts. He said that in the context of of our sending churches and in community. And so it's a cool thing. Uh, My wife, Kara, we've been married for a little over five years, and we have a three, almost four-year-old, a two-year-old, and we've got another one on the way. And so life for us is very, very busy, very full. Um, and, And it's a joy, little Zoe and Theo. Uh, and, and baby number three, whatever the name of baby. We actually don't know the gender. It's a mystery to us. We decide, you know what, we're not gonna find out. We'll find out when it happens and, and hopefully we'll have a name ready to go when that happens. Still working on it. We still got the, the, whole, uh, the whole draft board up, but we'll, we'll figure it out. So 
we're planting a church mainly because God's called us, but we also have this heart to see people changed and renewed by the gospel. Blacksburg is a town that is constantly growing because of Virginia Tech. It's a town with great gospel need. Of the 100,000 people in Montgomery County, where Blacksburg is the main part of Montgomery County, 65,000 of those people identify as religious nuns. No, not religious at all. Not nuns, as in, in, yeah. Not religious. Tons of nuns just everywhere. No, not religious. Uh, And and 16%, about 16,000 identify as evangelical Christians. So so just, just at a numbers level, there's a huge need. And then at just a personal, relational level, as I just walk through the the streets of our neighborhood, as I sit in coffee shops and hear conversations and and strike up friendships with people next to me, it is overwhelming to me how great the need is there. That these are all people made by and for God who are searching, who are asking questions, who have great need. And it is a joy to us, a privilege to us, that the Lord would call us to go and represent Jesus there and speak Jesus and and, and act on behalf of Jesus. And our hope is to see many lives changed by the gospel. And there's also something unique about a university town. Everyone doesn't stay there. There, I mean, like 20, 25% of the town is almost on rotation every four or five years. And so there's a ton of just sending capacity of people who are coming in and are leaving. And our heart is to not just see them leave, but to see them sent on mission all over the world. And one of the things, so even as we're meeting as a leadership team right now, that we talk about a lot is how do we model being the kind of church of ordinary people on mission? And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. How can you take another step forward in realizing that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation, You are an ambassador for the kingdom of Jesus. You are a minister of reconciliation, and you are a missionary right now in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, even in your family. You are a missionary. God has called you on mission. And so how do we do that? Because some of us feel like, I'm not a missionary. I don't don't have the skills for that. I don't know if I have the personality for that. I might be, I'm kind of introvert. I don't know if this is for me. I don't know how to do that. Well, in some sense, it's very simple. And and in in a greater sense, God's spirit is with us. When Jesus calls us to go out, he says, I'm going to be with you. I want to go to Matthew 9. This, the, the bulletin says Jonah 4. Um, Jonah 4 would probably help us too. I think we see a little, we see mission all throughout Jonah as well, but we're not going to be Jonah. We're going to be in Matthew. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. So I'll give you a second to get there. So in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, I want to I look at five practices, five rhythms of life of a missional life. Five practices that might mark us as we live as missionaries. These are the five. Well, they're, and they're on here too. Seeing, caring, trusting, praying, and going. We want to be people who see people, who care for people, who believe the promises of God, who trust in the person of God, who pray, even before we go, who pray, and then we want to be people who go. 
So let me read verse 35, Matthew 9. It writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And then verse 36, where we will start spending most of our time here this morning. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Think about your homes, your neighborhoods, your workplace, your community. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. So first we learn really from the practices of Jesus, and then this is this significant moment in Scripture where he's then kind of calling these 12 disciples to himself to be sent out. We see just in the very next verse in chapter 10. So we learn from the practices of Jesus, and then we also learn from the words of Jesus to his disciples. Well, what do we see? What's a missionary look like? How How do you live as a missionary in Powhatan? Well, the first thing is seeing. We have to practice the ministry of seeing of seeing people. It's, we could really quickly, that's the kind of phrase in, in the Bible you overlook. And he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. You might dial in on compassion. Might, might go right past and he saw the crowds. But Jesus, God in the flesh, is one who sees. He sees people. He sees you. He has seen you. Think about just the ministry of Jesus for a moment. I love in John 4, Or he goes to the woman at the well. It says he had to go through this town. He had to go to this place. And then he sees this woman. Perhaps in a way that no one has ever seen her before with real eyes of knowledge and of love. I think about John 9 where he comes to the man who was born blind. He sees the man. And he comes to him. And he heals him. He sees this man before this man sees him. But because he sees this man, because he comes to this man, this man is able to then see, and he sees Jesus, and he sees all of reality through Jesus. Jesus is the kind of God who sees people. That's significant for us. And so if we are people of Jesus, I think missionaries are people who see people. Just think about the stuff that you've looked at just this weekend. There's no way your, your mind could even remember all the stuff you've looked at, but you've looked at a ton. You've looked in the mirror, you've looked at yourself, you've looked at, at people that you live with, you've looked at your phone, probably a lot maybe. Uh, you've looked maybe at college football. I've watched a, uh, a little bit of college football yesterday. You've seen a ton. You've seen maybe even this weekend, you've seen things that bring grief to your soul and bring joy to your soul. You see all sorts of things. And I think the things that we give the attention of our eyes to, especially those things that we really devote ourselves to, that we keep coming back to, it says something about our hearts. That's the stuff we care about. And the things that we overlook, that we look at and we walk right past, I think that says even more, perhaps, about what we care about, what we love. Well, Jesus is the true good Samaritan. He doesn't see somebody and walk past. He doesn't just look at them and walk past. He sees and he comes near. So let's be people of Jesus. 
Let's first, before we do anything, before any words, let's just see people. But I think let's see people in a, in a gospel way. And I think seeing people in a gospel way means seeing their value, who they really are, and their need. It says, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we see people, one, we see their value. That this person, just like me, is a sheep made by God for God, made in the image of God. Every single person, even your worst enemy, even the people that you're tempted to snub or ignore, the person that cuts you off in traffic, the person working at the drive-thru, the person who's working at your school, made in the image of God. A sheep who was made for a certain shepherd, the true shepherd, the good shepherd. And so we need to see people's value. Everyone's made in the image of God. But we also need to see people's need. We are sheep without a shepherd. Right? And we could, we could spend a long time talking about what our greatest problem is not. It's not primarily financial. It's not primarily material. It's not primarily intellectual or even social or, or, or even maybe moral in the sense that it's not just about doing right things. We don't need just a bunch of really good people who follow the rules around here. There's a great need for, it's a spiritual need. We have a great need for a shepherd. The people around you, their greatest need is for the good shepherd. And so we need to see people. And as we see people, the second thing I want to say is we need to care for people. This is, this is a huge part of Jesus' ministry. If we neglected to see how often Jesus cared for people's actual needs, I think we would miss this is how God does ministry. Sure, he, I mean, even at, at that very first verse, 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and, and villages. That's pretty amazing. Like, he came to my town. Like, li- my little village. He came to my village. Teaching in their synagogues. He came to my place. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. Just notice how he's dealing. He's preaching the word of the gospel. But he's also dealing with people's real needs. We need to care for people. We need to care for people. He says he had compassion on them. He was moved in his gut for them. I have good news. Our God is a compassionate God. Our God is rich, (laughs) rich in mercy, full of mercy. I think, I think about Lazarus. I think about when Jesus comes to Lazarus' town four days late on purpose for the glory of God, and his dear friend had died. And I think about how Martha comes to him, and Martha says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then Mary comes to him and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It says the exact same thing word for word as what Martha says. And he weeps. He sees that his friend has died. He sees the grief of his sisters. He sees even the unbelief of the people in town that they don't know him for who he is. And he weeps. Because our God is a God who cares, who's full of compassion. One verse I've been meditating on lately is Psalm 72, 14, which says, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is your blood in his sight. Precious is your neighbor's blood in the sight of our God. 
And if we can just say a word about the cross. Your blood is so precious to God, so precious to our King, that He shed His own blood for you. Your life is so precious to our King that He gave His own life for you. Your wounds, your hurt is so important to him that he was wounded for you. He was hurt for you. This is, that it, it is at the cross that we see the compassion of Jesus. Well, we as a missionary people are called to care, to draw near to people and to care for what they're going through. And not in a trite way, not in a dismissive way, not in a way that basically just says, I'm okay with whatever. No, in a way that, that driven by the gospel says, you were made for Christ. You are a sheep, just like me, and you were made for a shepherd. I'm going to come alongside, and I'm going to bear with you. I think there's a lot more we could say about that. But I, would, I want to encourage you. Who in your life do you need to see and care for? Because as we talk about then sharing the word of the gospel, this is in some sense one, it, it, is, it is tilling the soil of people's hearts so that you can share it, but, but even more than that, it is actually embodying the very care and, and nature of our king in people's lives. And so, so who is God calling you to care for right now? As, as a community, as a small group, but as a family, but also even just as an individual. Who might God be calling you to care for? The third thing I want to say is this, and this is a, another point that I think I might have passed over, uh, at least in the, these terms, without slowing down. But maybe you've heard this before. He says this to his disciples. After he sees the crowds, after he's moved by compassion for them, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. What a beautiful metaphor. What a generous, charitable, magnanimous, hopeful way to think about your neighbors. The harvest is plentiful. He doesn't say, all right, now let's go to war with your neighbors. Like they're the enemy. Like that's not the metaphor he uses. He doesn't say like, all right, let's get get your stuff ready. We're going to war against you. No, in fact, God would tell us, our war is not with my neighbor. Like, I'm not at war with flesh and blood. I'm at war with something even much greater that is at work very much in our world, the enemy, who, who has, has done things in the lives of, of my neighbors. But, but my neighbor's not my enemy. Even if they, my neighbor thinks differently than me, my neighbor's not my enemy. And, and even more so than that, my neighbor might even be part of a harvest that is plentiful. What, what, a, what an abundant, what a generous mindset Jesus has about lost people, about people that don't yet know him, about perhaps you, even as you're sitting here and you're thinking, uh, it's sort of a talk about missional living. I'm not a Christian yet. I'm still considering these things. And, and I would want to say to you this morning, not only when you believe in Jesus are all of your sins covered, not only do you get new life, not only do you get to be a part of a new family that bears one another's burdens, but you get a new purpose. You get to live on mission. Your life has value. God of the, the God of the universe might even use you for his own purposes. But I also just want to say, think about how generously 
And hopefully Jesus talks about the lost. The harvest is plentiful. I think this all the time in Blacksburg. The harvest is plentiful. This is true of Powhatan. The harvest is plentiful. And so we need to trust that word. Jesus has said that to us. That's that's a statement, I think, of their context. But as we will see, it's a statement of, of the entire world because Christ has come for the nations. The harvest is plentiful. And so let's be people that that believe that. But I will confess, I am not always somebody that does believe that. If you're like me, you might even look, think about somebody in your life who you think, there's no way. This person's heart is way too hard. This person's life is way too far out there. This person has so set themselves on some like ideological platform that is so foreign to the gospel, I cannot imagine them believing in Jesus. There's no way they're actually a shepherd. I mean, a sheep who's desperately needing of a shepherd. I think about, so when I went to Virginia Tech, my, when I showed up, my first moment at Virginia Tech, I walk into the dorm room, my parents are moving me in. It is one of the most surreal, odd moments in life because it's for the first time you're like, I guess now I live on my own forever. And I, okay, this is crazy. And for parents, I imagine it's even crazier. They're like, I'm leaving my kid. I've raised them and now this, throwing them to the wolves. Like, so I walk into my dorm room, middle of the day, my roommate, who I don't really know very well, actually don't know at all, it was sort of a random thing, he wakes up when we get there, like middle of the day, he's been sleeping, rolls out of his bed, very much hungover. And I find out, okay, so he's, he's on the rugby team, he loves to party, he's not very interested in Jesus, and so we're, we're, we're living together in this very small, stinky, all-guys dorm at Virginia Tech. Um, and we just have a lot of conversations, lots of conversations about Jesus. I don't see any fruit of it. I don't see that year. I don't see him say, you know what? This isn't satisfying. I hear, I hear rumblings of that. This is not actually satisfying. This is, this is messing me up a little bit. But I don't see any of that real movement. Well, fast forward two years. I'm at a cookout at like midnight because that's when you go to cookout as a college student. In a college town, you go to cookout in the middle of the night. And I'm there and I see this guy. His name's Mike. And he comes up to me and says, Vince, Dude, I believe in Jesus now. Like, I, I've become a Christian. I'm involved in this ministry. I, I love the Bible. I love, I love Jesus. I was like, what? And I was like, and I, I don't need, maybe I planted some seeds and somebody else watered. I don't know. Maybe nothing. In some sense, it was almost this embarrassing thing. I was like, I haven't kept up with you well enough. I haven't been praying for you. I think I probably, I didn't, I didn't ever say, oh, there's no way it's going to happen, but maybe I was operating as though this would never happen. And here is the Lord, the God who raised Jesus from the dead at work in Mike's life, changing his heart. I just want to, I, I, there are people in your life who you think there is no way. There's a way. There is a way. The harvest is plentiful. We need to trust. The third thing we need to do is trust Him. The third thing that a missionary does is is they trust the promise and the word of our Lord. And then out of that, we begin laboring, right? And so the fourth thing, we might expect Jesus to say, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore, labor, right? We would expect that to be the next verb, the next word, the next thing to do. Go, like seriously, get to work. Like you got to get to work. 
And he's getting there. That's not what he says next. What does he say next? Therefore, pray. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. In Powhatan, in Blacksburg, across the world, therefore pray. Pray earnestly. So the fourth rhythm, I think, of a missional life is prayer. Perhaps you might be convicted along with me. If there's anything in life that I'm more like, I know this is the, the grounds of real life that I still don't tap into the way I know I could, it's prayer, even for my neighbors. I had a friend, I sent somebody an email, hey, I'm, I'm talking to this guy, this guy from the Middle East, doesn't know anything about Jesus, we're getting dinner, we're hanging out, he's, he's becoming really interested in, 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 in the story of the gospel. And he says, how are you praying for him? Which is a great question. Not just are you, but how are you praying for him? And he was asking that basically to say like, you know, given kind of the things he's struggling with, what's the particular things that you're praying for in his life? And, and what are the hurdles to faith that you're praying about? It was a great question, but it was a little bit of conviction because I thought, not earnestly. He says, pray earnestly. I thought, I'm not praying earnestly. I may be thinking earnestly, and maybe even trying to earnestly meet with him, but not praying earnestly. So, so that, that was a, a word, I, I think, conviction for me. He says, pray earnestly. Why pray? Why does he go straight to prayer? Let me, let me read for you a quote that I think is, has stuck with me. This is from a book called Prayer by a guy named Tim Keller. And this is just a, um, a good quote. This is prayer. is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It's also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. And then listen to this. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. I, I think particularly right now the phrase, it is, the, it is how we treat God as God is what stands out to me. First, prayer is just this reorienting of our position for the Lord. Prayer reminds us God is the one that changes hearts, not you. God is the one that does this work, and he's just using you. And then I, help, I think it helps us realize that God can actually use our prayers. I remember one time in, in Let the Nations Be Glad, I think it's in Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper talks about prayer as being this missional sort of thing. He says it's not just like, like kids down in the den calling up like an, inter, like an intercon up to the stairs or like shouting upstairs like, can I have more snacks? Like, that's not what prayer is. It's not like, Dad, more snacks, please. Like, that's not what prayer is. I mean, God's okay with those sort of prayers too, but, but, but more than that, he says it's like a walkie-talkie in, in wartime. Like, you're in enemy-occupied territory. You're an embassy of the kingdom. You live in enemy-occupied territory. And when you pray, you're radioing into sort of your commander saying, what, what, am, what, are, what are my orders? Where do I go? And if, and if God says go left, you go left. If he says go right, you go right. And you, you walk in step. How can we know which way to go if we don't talk to him? So I want to encourage you, friends, Pray. Even as, even as you think about our church planting in Blacksburg, prayer is not like a, 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 a little add-on for how you could support us. It's not like, oh, I can't go, I guess I can only pray, or I can't do anything, fine. I can only pray. No, prayer is first. Before they go, they pray. And so the fourth rhythm of, of a missional life, I think, is prayer, which is, which is beautiful in this sense. 
There are people in this room who've cultivated a secret life of devotion to Jesus that just doesn't get the recognition that it will one day when we enter the kingdom. There are people who are going to war on your behalf and on behalf of this church, and, 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 and more credit is due them than, than, is, than is given. But the Lord sees that, and the Lord smiles on that. And we even use the language of prayer warriors, and we should. People who are diligent in prayer, who, who are earnest in prayer. Even when I hear that language of earnest, I think about, uh, about the woman in Luke 18 who just in the middle of the night, like, knocks on the door, like, I need something. And it's like, it's the middle of the night. Are you serious? And they just, she just knocks, like, I need this thing. I need this thing. And Jesus says, that's how you should pray. There are people in this room who are knocking on God's door in prayer consistently, earnestly, because they rely on it and they need it. God is glorified by that. And may we learn from those people. May we learn to slow down and pray. And so the fifth thing I want to say, the fifth and final rhythm of a life on mission, it comes right after this text, actually. Go. Actually, go. Here's what's cool. He tells the disciples, pray that the Lord would send out laborers. And then he sends them out in the next verse. Verse 10 of Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and every affliction. Then he names them. Then verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, basically, because that's going to come after Jesus' dead race. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim that as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, raise the dead, okay, raise the dead, Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Okay, what's going on here? Jesus says, pray that God would send people out. And then God sends people out. And it's the same people he's telling them to pray for. Here's the point. God is asking you and calling you to pray that he would send out laborers into the harvest. And then don't be surprised when he sends you. When he makes you the answer to your own prayer. You might say, God, I need somebody to engage my neighbor, my son, my mother, my coworker, oh, this coworker, with the gospel. And Jesus says, yes, you. It's you. I'm calling you to do that. And he'll bring other people in a lot of times, but a lot of times he's calling you. And so I want to, I want to, I want to settle in for just a second and end it here and say this. As we go, there are these two calls of Christ. And we need to hear both of them. The first is in chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to himself. The first call of Christ. And I want you guys to hear this. Is God becoming human? And by his life, death, and resurrection... He calls us to himself. Jesus is calling you. Before he calls you out to go do anything, he's calling you to himself. I picture, and, 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 I, and I'm like, I don't know, those of you who are parents, I don't know if there's ever moments where you just like imagine horrible things like that your, your kids 
could, could end up doing or whatever. And there's times there I imagine that. And one of those is like, the, I imagine losing my kid. And some of you might have lost your kids. And that's, I think as a kid, I was the kind of kid that like literally ran off all the time. And, and I'm just afraid that like, this is going to be payback, sort of like, I'm going to lose my kids. I have this picture, imagine this. Imagine being somebody who actually loses your kid in a public place. Like imagine being in a crowded place, you lose your kids, so you start talking to people, you start looking around, you're just doing it by yourself, and then you get to a point where you just stand up on the highest thing you can find, and with your loudest voice, you just shout their name. You just say, come here for me. Zoe, come here. Because I don't care what these people think. Like I, I am singularly focused, where is my kid? That is what is going on at the cross. That is what is going on in the resurrection. That is what is going on when you hear the word of the gospel today. It is God, the one standing up saying, come here, my child. My lost sheep, come here. Come to me. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The first call is to Jesus. And so friends, if you have never yielded to that call, would you today? Would you say, no one, no one could promise me the life, joy, purpose, and future that Jesus can offer for me. No one can, who can cleanse my sins? Who can wash away my sins? No one, nobody. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so would you come to Jesus? The first call is to himself, and then the second call is to go out. And so friends, I, I want to say this. You're called to go out. Your first call to come in, to come to Jesus, and to know him as he is, and to discover who you really are in him. And then you're called to go out in the normal rhythms of your life. You're called to be a missionary.